welcome to the Chicago Justice Podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Siska. I'm also the executive director of the Chicago Justice Project. You can find out more about our work at chicagojustice.org or get involved at cjpnation.org. Okay, we're going to talk about an op-ed written by three aldermen that appeared in the Tribune and basically take it apart and show you everything that's wrong with it. And then we're going to feature a conversation with Dr. Joseph Richardson, executive producer of Life After the Gunshot, and also a professor of African-American studies at the University of Maryland. Real quickly, though, this Friday, March 11th, is our next day of action. We are targeting Mayor Lori Lightfoot and basically her practice of withholding reports from the Deputy Public Safety Inspector General, which is our concern, but overall the Office of Inspector General in Chicago. In October of 19, but, uh, the City Council gave her the power to release those reports by her discretion. And to this date, she's only released two. And obviously the ones that are most critical of her or are most likely to have the most critical information about her administration, she is not releasing. So we're going to have our nation, our volunteers, interns, and supporters target her through a tweet storm on Friday to try to convince her that those reports need to be made public. This is, for example, the report in uh, Superintendent, former Superintendent Eddie Johnson, his DUI accident and the subsequent investigation of that incident. What did the cops do on the scene? Those are two different reports. And then for the biggest one, in my opinion, is to report into Mayor, um, the Anjanette Young raid and um, how they got the warrant and all of that, but also what the mayor's office knew and how they responded to it. Um, all of that information is being withheld to us, so we're gonna target her on the 11th to try to convince her to release that information. Okay, segment one. Alderman Tabaras Lopez Napolitano, public safety and cops commitment are suffering under city leadership. This is an op-ed they wrote late last week in the Chicago Tribune. You may not be surprised from those names because you're talking about three pretty much hard right aldermen, especially Napolitano, a former cop, one of the uh, supporters. I think he helped author, sponsor, that's what I was looking for, one of the sponsors of the Blue Lives Matter ordinance after the videotaped murder of Laquan McDonald came out. And I'm going to be surprised. This is one of the stupidest things you'll read all, probably all year, as far as an op-ed for sure. The first thing they talk about here is how the head of COPA is anti-police. Okay, now think about that for a minute. The suggestion, if you flip that, if they're complaining about that, is they want a pro-police head of the Citizen Office of, of Police Accountability the office that's supposed to look into cops wrongdoing, they're supposed to be pro-police. This comes from, this all stems from the female officer whose name's escaping me, it's time and I don't want to mispronounce it, who died in the line of action. She died in a traffic stop. It was a horrible incident. Her uh, partner was shot in the face, I believe, but survived. Within a month or two after that shooting or a couple months after that shooting, an investigation of a totally separate incident came out and it found that she had committed misconduct. And the city council and all their self-righteousness blew up. How dare you say, how dare you put that out? So what they, what your city council and the alt-right in the city council did, and this also goes for Mayor Lightfoot to some extent, what they wanted the 
COPA to do is they wanted them to doctor records. They wanted to doctor official records and investigations because you can't put out anything negative about an officer that died in the line of duty. Two things can actually occur at the same time, although most alt-writers don't believe this. You can be heroic and die in, on the line of duty in an incident and also have committed mass misconduct at some point previously in your history. Now, what they want, what these people want, Tavares, Lopez, Napolitanos, Pizzato, that ilk, is they want this officer, the female officer that died, they want her thought of in the grandest possible way instead of more of a real human being. Why? Hmm, I don't know. I would bet that has something to do with the propaganda value they're getting off of her. Never underestimate the ability of a Chicago politician, especially, but any politician, to exploit anything and have and anything, anything and everything that happens related to policing and justice issues for their political ends. I think it was Rahm Emanuel, right, who coined the phrase, never let a, um, never, never let a scandal um, get away, which means, I mean, it's better worded than that, but basically there's always ways to flip it and exploit it. Um, so that's the first part of this that's just so badly wrong. Here's the next one. More payouts of taxpayer money to settle lawsuits over fighting for the truth in court. These people, these aldermen, a lot of the alt-right in Chicago, they want the city to fight more cases in court rather than settle. Now, here's the thing, ladies and gentlemen. These three and their ilk can vote no on settlements and get in the papers and get the support of the alt-right in Chicago, the police union, white supremacists, that ilk, because they know the majority of the city council, the people in the finance community are going to vote yes. If they vote down a settlement, what happens? Who's going to take responsibility if that goes to trial and they lose three times, five times, eight times, 10 times the settlement amount? There's this assumption that the lawyers in the law department don't know what they're doing. Well, of course, the only people who know what they're doing are the alt-right and the police. They all, they're perfect and unquestionable. They don't know what they're doing in the law department, and they're just way too quick to settle. Well, if it's going to take us $150,000 to defend the case, and we could settle it for $30,000, why am I going to go defend it? Especially when there's an, a better than even chance, or even greater than that, that we're going to lose the case and have to pay tens of thousands more than what we have settled for. What are you doing? The alt-right the police union member, FOP President John Catanzara, is alt-right as you get. You can look up a report on our website about his history. He's no longer a police officer because he was about to get fired. He's been pushing this, and the FOP's been pushing this for decades. You settle too much, you settle too much, you settle too much. They want their officers going under oath and depositions, and then in federal court, because that's where most of the cases get filed, they lie constantly. You're just exposing your officers to more and more chances for perjury, right? Because what happens, what people don't understand about this, and they certainly don't, nor do they care to learn, is that the officers lie all the way through it. They will lie and lie to COPA or then IPRA or before that, the Office of Professional Standards or Internal Affairs, lie their butt off, but then they get in a deposition and they get to trial. And now they're under threat of perjury. And all of a sudden, they suddenly take the fifth.
or they tell the truth because they don't want to go to jail. See, they'll lie because they don't fear. They don't really fear COPA or any of its predecessors or internal affairs. They don't fear being fired. So, but they know, the lawyers know, they're like, oh, this is what you're saying, but all the evidence points the other way. We know if we pursue this and don't settle it, when you get to court or you get into a deposition and you get to trial, you're going to tell the truth. And then we're screwed. But these hacks, these political hacks want the city to fight more. There's a reason the law department isn't fighting these. But these alt-writers here can't get it through their head. They don't understand that what the FOP is pushing is propaganda to try to push the blame for the settlements on the city and on the lawyers and on the politicians and not their officers. They know what's going on. It's all a sham. It's all theater. These idiots are buying into the theater. Next. This is direct, directly from the article. And the biggest development was Mayor Lightfoot's victory lap at a news conference over the recent arbitration decision regarding the city's vaccine mandate for police officers. This ignores the fact that our actions will likely are likely to lead up to one third of pension eligible department members leaving. Pension eligible, you have to be there 20 years. As poorly trained as this force is, go. Go. If you're gonna leave, over getting the vaccine, your service providers, your first responders, obviously it's going to be mandated for you. COVID's still not going away. You're not going to get your shot? Go. Besides the fact they're the worst trained cops the Chicago Police Department has. They spent the vast majority of their careers after they left the academy getting no training at all, and occasionally they have to watch something on a video, and they don't pay attention to it, even when the feds are in the room that are investigating the police department. At roll call, the, the cops are going through their phones. If that's a problem, leave. We better off without them. We need to shrink the force as it is. That's a, this is. You're giving us the way to do it. Next. The continued erosion of police department has been going on for years, but it's accelerated under the current administration. Is it me or the cops and their supporters never take responsibility for anything? I mean, really? Let's see. Could the erosion have started, I mean, God knows, we'll just start with Burge and he started torturing in the 70s through the early 90s, early 70s, early 90s. Burge, um, Mark Henton, Austin Seven, that got a, the Austin Seven tried to get a deputy superintendent or maybe a superintendent at that point. Then we have the SOS unit that was kidnapping and beating and robbing people, uh, people of color all over the city. Could it be those scandals? Could it be the Laquan McDonald murder? Could it be that the head of the FOP has 50, has 50 complaints in his 23 years on the career? Could have those things led to an erosion in the department? You have one of the most poorly trained, poorly disciplined, poorly managed police departments in the country. This is the CPD. If nothing else, over the last two years, and the Deputy Public Safety Inspector General's office here has taught or shown us how broken administratively that department is and everything they do. And we'll be coming out soon with staffing reports. It's nearly impossible for the, the police department to tell who is staffed where, what districts have how many officers. And um, if you look at the University of Chicago Crime Lab, 
They recently had an engagement with the police department trying to help them build a staffing analysis. And one of the things they did was build them a tool, I believe, so they would just know how many officers in what district so that when they get new officers out of the academy, they can figure out where they need to go because they didn't know that. It's unbelievable how broken this department is. And they're worried about the erosion, clout, promotions, right? The hiring, I mean, the hiring of Eddie Johnson, hiring of McCarthy, and the promotion of um, uh, um, Bill Klein after he almost went to federal prison. He wouldn't testify in a federal case and doctored a warrant to rip off a drug dealer. Next. As members of the city council, we are on the front lines of the public safety war being waged in our neighborhoods. City council members, you're not. What you're on the front lines for is political responsibility for the policies that you have voted on that create the circumstances in these communities. And as the whores you are, you're trying to duck that responsibility. This is the Chicago two-step. This has been in place for 100 years in Chicago. You vote for policies that suck more and more and more and more resources from communities of color because you're racist and you don't care and your donors don't care. So there's impact of those policies, those votes that you're backing. There are policies for superintendents that you help hire and you confirm. You don't wanna play that, you don't wanna have that political responsibility for that. So what do you do? You say it's, it's, the, it's the mayor's fault, right? That's what you do. You're not crime fighters. You're policymakers. If the circumstances in the communities are really bad, it's because the policies you are passing and creating are causing those problems. Take some responsibilities, get your heads out of your asses, and do your job. You're not crime fighters, right? I would love to know how many of these aldermen have voted for the tax increment financing program and creating more and more and more TIFs that suck more and more resources. Did any of these people vote for ROM's closing of 50 schools? Did any of these policymakers vote for the closing of mental health clinics under ROM? As policymakers, you're responsible for the circumstances in those communities. You're not a crime fighter. You're a public policy person. That's what you do. Don't mistake this. You're just trying to shuffle your way out of responsibility for the policies and practices you have approved. Next. We know public policy is, is as much about a resident's feeling of security, or we know public safety is as much about a resident's feeling of security as it, about, as it is about statistics. Polling is revealing that people feel less safe in Chicago than in recent memory, and crime statistics show the sentiment as well-founded. Not entirely wrong. Yes, crime statistics, crime, gun violence is up. Gun violence is up, and so are carjackings in most major city and major cities and most cities around the country. The smaller the city, the worse it gets. One of these things these three are doing, and the alt-right is doing in Chicago, is like Chicago is in a bubble, it's completely alone, right? Because if you if you put Chicago in the larger context, then you have to look at, wow, what is going on in all these cities? What public policies have been created that have an effect on all these cities that could be help causing all of these problems? Um, 
Now, the, 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 the survey they are citing, I get emails all the time to take it. I never do. It's from the daily line. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm living in D.C. I don't know how much that's impacting who's getting access to this um, survey, but I don't put a whole lot of faith in that. I do believe, I do believe residents' feeling of security is, is been shaken. And as I've had to tell many a white friends on the north side of Chicago, welcome. You have done nothing for 50 years to ignore the crime and violence on the west and south side. You've done nothing to change those circumstances that are causing that crime and violence that are at the root cause, right? Because you don't care. You keep voting in racist, horrible aldermen. You keep fighting for the most police forces for your community ever because somehow on the north side over the last 50 years, you've really been in danger. And now that some of this is spread, a little bit of this is spread to your area. And now all of a sudden, it's incredibly, it's a, it's a world-class problem. Oh my God, we got to deal with it. Who didn't see that coming? Once again, most of these white people in Chicago, most of the north side, wouldn't really care about this problem if it wasn't in the loop and someone on the north side, a little bit on the north side. They wouldn't care. If they could go about their lives without having to deal with it, they couldn't care less about what's happening on the south and west side. It was only a matter of time till it spilled out of the communities from the south and west sides. Here it is. You should have done something about it 50 years ago, 40 years ago, 30 years ago, 20 years ago, 10 years ago, five years ago. You didn't. This is what you get. Who could have figured out worldwide pandemic was coming on? Here's, here's one of the best ones. With a system that is more punitive to police than criminals, it is no wonder we are seeing the level of crime under this administration. Police officers are getting fired while criminals are getting paid. Okay, complete lie. Social science, and I've talked about it many times on the podcast. Two social science studies, empirical, independent, from Loyola University of Chicago's Crim Department, doctors Dave Olson, Don Steeman proved definitively. I think it's 18 months pre and post bond reform in late 2016, no significant increase in crime. A later one showed five studied like five years of uh, gun violence prosecutions, like what happened in those years and how does um, that compare um, county to county around the, around the state. Wouldn't you know it, Kim Fox has the Longest sentences handed down for gun violence offenses out of anywhere in the state. These people don't know what they're talking about. The data doesn't support it, which is why earlier they said it's about public perception, even though it's not the data. Don't look at the data. It's public perception you got to worry about. They don't know what they're talking about. Yes, COPA came out yesterday or not yesterday, but this year instead, oh, we fired, we put up, uh, we handed down more decisions related to discipline, recommendations for discipline in the level of firing an officer than has ever been done or doubled than the year before or something. Ladies and gentlemen, it's BS. First of all, in our study, you can go look at it on our website related to crime and uh, police accountability written by uh, Catherine Large at the University of Chicago. The highest percentage of percentage of complaints sustained against an officer for any year from 1980, as much as data is available from 2000, I think 21, was eight and a half percent. 
Like, I think the average is like two and a half or 3%. I mean, it's nothing. And this like largest number of officers fired, this also happened under IPRA. 2010, 2011 timeframe, uh, maybe 12, she was leaving. So maybe it's like 13 at the time. Uh, Alana was leaving the original head of, of IPRA, the Independent Police Review Authority. And she said, hey, this year, there's going to be a, a large number of cases coming through for dismissals. Well, why? Well, it's just because the bureaucracy inside the system was backlogged and they had gotten enough staff to start going through those cases. So it seemed like, oh my God, there's a lot of firing cases. But some of those, like the cases that Copa's talking about, could be two or three years old just because of circumstances and backups and lazy and corrupt and broken system because Copa is broken. It just piled up. So it really doesn't mean that anything's really changed. And it doesn't seem like, um, remember the head of Copa was fired or forced to resign. We have the second in charge that just got confirmed, by the way, illegally. The community commission ordinance does not allow the mayor to appoint the head of COPA. And that took effect immediately upon that law taking effect, which was took effect upon passing. It struck out her ability to appoint them. So you want to talk about corrupt, they let the mayor appoint the new head of COPA and the city council confirmed the person. And if I was a cop and I was found guilty of doing anything under a COPA investigation, I would immediately sue. Um, that head of that organization cannot sign any recommendation for discipline or any legal document because her appointment is completely illegal. One more. The city and its residents are feeling the effects of politicians' misplaced priorities and ideologies. You're right. 100% right. Your misplaced priorities, your ideologies. What policies have you guys put place, put up to change the financial situation, the economics, the poverty in these communities? Nothing. Napolitano's big claim to fame was the police, what was it? Blue Lives Matter ordinance. If you remember back, and some of you may not, that was brought up in early 2016 as a response to protests in over Thanksgiving, late 2015, to the videotape murder of Laquan McDonald coming out. And there were all these calls for police accountability. So what did Alderman Spizzato and Alderman Napolitano do in response to an officer shooting a black mentally troubled youth 16 times on videotape for absolutely no reason, murdering him? He eventually went to prison, Jason Van Dyke. What did they do? They authored an ordinance about Blue Lives Matter. That's his claim to fame. So do you think that alderman is authoring legislation that's going to make changes in black and brown communities? No. It is amazing the length politicians will go to to serve as a megaphone for the FOP John Catanzaro and the FOP's ilk. I do agree that the whatever the mayor has done with staffing, and she's continuing the same thing Rom did and Daly did and all the police department did, there needs to be transparency around that. Um, there's no doubt about it, but they're interested in exploiting the crime and violence for political gain. They are not in any way interested in stopping it or doing what's really going to need to be stopping it. Their only mantra is more and more cops. Let the cops do anything they want. Don't discipline them. They can murder all the people they want. As long as they're white and the people they are murdering are black and brown, they don't seem to care.
Okay, so we're going to move on to our second segment, which is interview an interview we did uh, recently with Dr. Joseph Richardson, executive producer of Life After the Gunshot. I would say executive producer of a platform. We'll get into that in the interview. Dr. Richardson is the Joel and Kim Feller Professor uh, and M. Power Professor of African-American Studies and Anthropology at the University of Maryland. And he's also, as I said, the executive producer of Life After the Gunshot. It is a fascinating platform um, that looks at what happens to people when they're shot, not necessarily the medical, a little bit on the medical, but what happens mentally, what is going on in the communities where there's elevated levels of violence and gun violence and how that all ties together and what that says about the, um, the life course of these people, especially after they're shot. I've never seen anything like it. It really is an amazing, an amazing effort um, by Dr. Richardson. So we'll be back after the interview. Dr. Joseph Richardson, thank you so much for jumping in the pod. We really appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me. Okay, explain to our audience who have not seen it. Life after the gunshot. When you go on there, I've done, uh, watched some of the videos, amazing, amazing work. Um, this, should be, this should be all over the country, in my opinion. You've uh, kind of categorized it online as a storytelling platform. How do, you, how do you see this? And um, how do you see the platform? Great question. So Life After the Gunshot is a digital storytelling project based on the lives of young Black men in Washington, D.C., who are survivors of violent firearm injury. And they are all young men who participated in a hospital violence intervention program that I directed at the University of Maryland Prince George's Hospital Center, which is now known as the University of Maryland Capital Region Health. And those 10 young men who were in that program were gracious enough to um, voluntarily participate in this study, which was uh, directed and led by myself and Che Bullock, who was also the violence intervention specialist at the time at our hospital violence intervention program at uh, Prince George's Hospital. And I also wanna mention the name of the program is a Capital Region Violence Intervention Program, also known as CAPVIP. So if you hear me say CAPVIP, I'm just abbreviating Capital Region Violence because I don't, I don't wanna say the entire name, it's just far too long to keep it continuously say over and over again. So we received a, a grant from the Center for Victims Research, Researcher to Practitioner Fellowship and we started with interviewing 10 uh, young black men who were survivors of violent firearm injury. And when we completed the interviews, uh, fortunately for us, we had a significant amount of money left, which if we did not spend, as many people know in the grant world, we would have to return it. And so we decided to expand the scope of the digital stories to all the individuals who intersect the gun violence space. And we included trauma surgeons, uh, psychotherapists, defense attorneys, judges, uh, legislators, and, uh, and most importantly, the families and, uh, and partners of the young men in the film. And uh, so that 
film, the first episode that we have posted on our website is episode one, but it's also an episodic series. So the first episode centers on gun violence and trauma. And then the subsequent three episodes, episode two uh, centers on the intersection of the healthcare and the criminal justice system, because we have far too many young men who come into our trauma unit and work in our program that also have some form or some form of criminal justice involvement, whether on probation or parole, or some form of ankle monitoring. And then the third episode uh, centers on the context of gun violence in DC and, and looking at the neighborhoods in DC and, and, and the culture of gun violence and the way gun violence has played out over decades since uh, the 80, late 80s and 90s when DC was known as the murder capital of the United States and bringing it up to the present. And then the, the last and fourth episode focuses on solutions. And so we're ending um, episode four, our final episode with solutions. And the solutions are actually the, uh, coming from the voices of the young men that are in the project and not solutions that we had proposed as, as producers or directors or gun violence interventionists, but actually from the, the mouths and, and minds of young men who have thought very carefully about ways to solve gun violence in the district and across the country. So what was the impetus? What drove you to this specific project? Because it's not like anything I have ever seen. So it, it really emanated from my desire to show what I see in my interviews. So I, I've been doing interviews and conducting ethnographic research in urban communities uh, since I was a doctoral student at Rutgers University. And my first study uh, focused on uh, African-American kids who were in junior high school in the social context of adolescent violence in Harlem, New York. And since that time, I was very interested in, I've always been interested in film and using a digital recorder for me just wasn't enough because I, I really wanted people to be a fly on the wall and, and able to see what I'm actually seeing during the, the time that I'm interviewing. And body language is also a, a means of expression, which we don't typically highlight enough. And I wanted to move beyond just the word to also incorporating and integrating the facial expressions, the body language. And so people could really see how young men and the people who love them and care about them express the, their emotions uh, regarding gun violence, trauma, and, and recovery. And so um, very early on in my career, I started taking documentary film classes and uh, this wasn't my first rodeo with uh, a camera. I've, I've shot other um, PSAs in a short documentary as well called Bullets Without Names, which was focused on a young man that um, I was working with several years ago who was also from DC that was a victim of violent injury. So I, it just was a matter of expanding the work that I've already uh, have been doing for such a long period of time 
to uh, a visual platform. Okay. One of the things that I loved about at least episode one, because that's the one I watched, I was in this project is it, it looks for things that play a role in causing the violence at a much deeper level. Right. I am so, so sick of the more cops, more justice system argument. And with the flare up in uh, gun violence in a lot of urban areas, that's all the talk. That's all the rage in Chicago. More cops, more cops, more cops. Right. Right. And so one of the things I think that was in episode one was this graphic that you had that was like showing the difference between visible and invisible violence. Exactly. So I think... I think we, I think most people understand getting shot, getting stabbed, but a lot of these people are both victimized multiple times by gun violence and maybe uh, other violence like stabbings and stuff. What is the invisible violence? So yeah, great question. My work uh, in, in the gun violence space, my first um, response to why gun violence happens there needs to be, it must be a structural violence argument that precedes that. And so for, for me, it's about showing the violence that we don't see um, and that we don't necessarily think of in terms of this is violence. And so I use the term structural violence and the ways that the structure has caused harm and injury to specific populations that could be preventable and avertable. So let's just take in, use as an example, life expectancy rates. There was a study that was done um, and, and it's accessible data, which you can find in the DC Health Department reports, which found that in, uh, in Washington, DC, and I just want to also make it's very clear that Washington DC is roughly like 62, 63 square miles. And in one quadrant of the city, Woodley Park, which is predominantly white and middle-class, the life expectancy in that neighborhood is 89.4 years. And St. Elizabeth, which is east of the river, which is predominantly black and poor, the life expectancy is 68.4 years. So in a matter of, a 10 to 15 minute ride on the Metro, let's just take, for example, the Metro in DC. If you were to ride on the Metro for 15 minutes from one side section of the city to the other, you would lose roughly 21 years of your life, right? And, and my job was really to illuminate the social determinants of health, which undergird why there's such a lower life expectancy among Black Washingtonians and particularly Black men who were natives of Washington, D.C., where the life expectancy difference between white men and, and, and Black men in Washington, D.C. is 17 years, almost two decades. How do we arrive at that number? Well, that comes from a lot of different factors, whether they're food and medical deserts uh, in predominantly Black neighborhoods, um, the overabundance, uh, the uh, environmental racism, inadequate housing, poor schools, and all the other social determinants of health that cumulatively lead to lower life expectancy rates 
among the young black men. And all of those things are avertable and preventable. So if we know that, but we, yet we're not investing the resources to address these issues, then I would consider that and many others would consider that a form of violence. I agree with you. And I, I in Chicago specifically, because that's most of my experience, we have political mayoral candidate after mayoral candidate coming up with, you need to do all these things to change the circumstances in these communities. And then they get in the office and they do almost nothing to change the circumstances in the communities. It's strange how the candidates are all for it, but the politicians, once they're elected, they're never really for those changes. <laughs> um, that most, people aren't, those people aren't donating to their campaigns. Um, so what is um, a concept from episode one? What is the broken child inside us? So the broken child inside us focuses on adverse childhood experiences and, and the trauma that many people across race experience as children, traumatic events that often are undiagnosed and untreated that will ultimately manifest in health risks and high risk behaviors in adulthood. So for the young men that are in the film and that I work with, many have experienced um, early on in their childhood, the incarceration of a parent. And DC has one of the highest incarceration rates in the country. I think we, we talked about this a little bit offline, just in terms of policing in Washington, DC, which is which there are over 30 law enforcement agencies in the District of Columbia, again, in a 62, 63 mile space, um, and, and how that plays out in terms of the disproportionate incarceration of Black Washingtonians in the district. So I'll just use, for example, we, we, we've legalized marijuana in Washington, DC, but you still cannot sell it, directly sell it where you're exchanging currency. Right. So there are restrictions and conditions to the way that marijuana is still policed, even though it's legal. But in Washington, D.C., 90 percent of all the arrests for marijuana in the district are, are black Washingtonians when black Washingtonians represent 46 percent of the city's population. How could that be? And we know that whites use drugs at least equally or far more than than black Americans do. So when you have 90% of all the people arrested for drugs are black Washingtonians, it's a form of structural violence. And so when a child sees their parent sent away in Washington DC to a federal prison, because in, in DC, we have no state prison system. So someone sent to prison will be, can be sent as far away as California, uh, Arizona, uh, North Dakota, South Dakota, and removed from their family for years where it becomes prohibitively expensive to even visit their parent. So that's an adverse childhood experience. Uh, chronic exposure to violence in the community. There have been studies done which have shown that kids who even live within a four to five block radius of where violence has occurred are more likely to show up to an ED for symptoms of traumatic stress. There was a study recently done at the University of Pennsylvania which has highlighted uh, those findings. And so if children go through these experiences uh, early on in their childhood and those 
those traumatic events are not addressed, they're more likely to manifest in high-risk behaviors uh, into adulthood. And, and so we really wanted to dig into uh, averse childhood experiences among young men and what those experiences look like. And as a, as a way of setting the table for not pathologizing the young men that we, we work with, but actually providing a, a scientific explanation, right? For why some people may engage in high-risk behaviors as young adults. It's interesting you bring that up because I had a professor at UIC that did these sessions with kids from underserved communities, almost all communities of color in Chicago, because poverty has a high likelihood of being correlated with black and brown communities in Chicago. And they were talking about trying to get them to understand the decisions they're making and the long-term impact they'll have on their lives. And the kid's like, long-term impact, black male kid, I'm going to be dead or in prison by 30. Marriage, family, compound interest, long-term, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, right. And it's that understanding from our perspective as professionals and older, wait a minute, your decision is going to have a long-term impact on your life where they don't see having a life long-term impact. They see all these things automatically out of their reach. So thus, if you, if you have that mindset and that's a structural issue that breeds that mindset, then the, the decisions they're making are much, um, much less risky and bad if you only think you're going to live to 30 or be in prison or dead. Exactly. Right. So you're making you're making decisions based on economic survival as well. Yep. Right. And, and this ties back to the concentrated poverty in many na black neighborhoods in D.C. and across the country where concentrated poverty in D.C. has uh, has increased since 1970. Right. So you also have to factor in when you're experiencing adverse childhood experiences, that has a physiological effect on your body as well. So that also affects your brain functioning and brain development. And if you're constantly in a state of fight or flight and you're generating um, chemicals within your body that affect the development of your brain and your thinking skills, right? And affect your, the growth of your prefrontal cortex, that also affects your decision-making. So there are also physiological aspects of being constantly being under stress and under pressure and experiencing chronic trauma over the or continuous trauma over the life course. And we also have to acknowledge the physiological effects that has on one's body and brain development as well, which ultimately will affect your decision-making. So you combine that with the economic stressors, um, the structural violence in communities, which leads to shorter life expectancy, and then add the, another layer on of the physiological effects. And we can, under, we can clearly understand how many young people arrive at very poor decisions. Yeah, and I have always had a big problem also with this idea that all these... Um, all these remedies, that's not the best word I'm looking for, but all the cures that you will hear politicians, and honestly, a lot of criminologists like me, not me, but a lot of them that look like me for sure, have for the violence in communities of color, especially uh, urban gun violence. They never really address poverty. If you 
in your opinion, if we were to radically address the poverty through something like a universal basic income, for instance, even though I'm not a Yang fan, if you were to really get people immediately by giving them direct money out of, at least out of the, the federal guidelines of being in poverty and reduce that stressor, what do you think it would, what do you think that impact would have on these communities long-term? Oh, I, I definitely think we would see in uh, vast improvement in, in health and social outcomes among those who have been marginalized and disenfranchised in those communities. Let's just put this into, into context. Uh, there was a study done, and you people can access it on the Washington Post, which found that the net wealth of a white household in Washington, D.C., is $284,000 compared to the net wealth of a black household in Washington, D.C., which is $3,500. So there's 81 times the level of the, the, wealth gap between black and white Washingtonians. Well, there's a reason behind that. That is clearly tied to structural racism and the inability to the inner trans, intergenerational transference of wealth, which is how most people achieve wealth, right? They don't, you typically become self-made millionaires. People inherit wealth. They, they get a transfer, they either get uh, intergenerational transference of a home, which is typically the way that people achieve their wealth. But if you've, your community has been redlined, right? You're unable to get a bank loan or the, let's just go, we can go further back to the GI Bill, right? Which benefited white soldiers returning from the war and not African-American soldiers. All of these things ultimately play out in terms of concentrated poverty and the lack of wealth. And so the only way to quickly close that gap, and many scholars have made this argument, and you know, I give a shout out to Sandy Darity um, and then my other colleagues who do work on reparations is there, there needs to be monetary compensation for the, the centuries of structural racism that have prevented um, the accumulation of wealth to close the wealth gap in this country. And that's just not in DC, that's across the United States. One of the biggest things I think under talked about for obvious reasons, part of the 2008 economic decline, whatever depression, whatever you wanna call happened there, the housing crisis, quote unquote housing crisis, was the absolute decimation through foreclosures of black homeowners losing their homes, black middle-class and lower middle-class families who either inherited their properties or were able to scrape together enough to buy something, but were just teetering on the edge, but hoping to be able to get, you know, transfer that property to their children after they pass, right? right? And you build up this middle-class lifestyle, right? And you embed that in your family through ownership. That just got decimated. In Chicago, it was unprecedented numbers. Uh, I mean, and, and that just sucked black, um, Black economic freedom just sucked it away and a radically under, under talked about story because that has true and unprecedented long-term economic consequences for these families. Um, so I want to talk about one last thing, which is what um, I, I gotta tell you, part of that was really hard to watch. And I've been all over Chicago and all kinds of communities, episode one. Man, hard to watch. You know, you had a stat, I think it was something like, and I may get this wrong, like 
45%, if I got the number right, of people that come into the emergency room for a stabbing or a shooting are back in there in five years. Whole, that just amazing. And just seeing how... Um, How, how everything is, is, is impacted their spirit. I mean, I don't know a better way to phrase it, but just hearing them talk and hearing um, a lot of, of, of just being beaten and losing and being beaten down um, right. was, was, was very hard. And if, and if this project does nothing but put that in people's faces, um, then it, that, if, if it does that alone, it'll be a success. I've never seen anything like this. Uh, so kudos to you for doing it. Kudos for doing academic work that actually has meaning on the street instead of just writing a stupid journal article. Um, I was at the sentencing project years ago. I was at, I'm going to tell you really quickly, I have a couple minutes. Um, I was at the, um, I was at a policy meeting with all these heads of nonprofits many years ago that all worked on criminal justice issues in, um, in DC, I was a guest and someone made an act, a joke about an academic at the end and everyone laughed but me. And someone, I was meeting with someone a couple hours later from the sentencing project and I met with her same day. And I said, why did you make that joke? And why did you laugh at that joke? I didn't get it. She's like, all you guys do, it's like a group masturbation center session. All you do is write these papers. You're the only idiots reading them. They have no impact in the world. And the bare chance that you do write something that's meaningful, then we got to decode it to go deal with the idiots up on the hill, the 21-year-old idiots we have to deal with on the hill. And I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. She goes, do you go, are you going, have you been on the hill yet? I'm like, no, I'm going right now. She goes, you'll learn. You'll think of me in two minutes. Trust me. And I'm like, no, I'm meeting with some high up in Dick Durbin's office, Senator Durbin's office. She goes, you'll get it. And I ended up having to meet with an aide of an aide, some 21-year-old kid. And I was like, holy shit. How am I supposed to impart all these incredibly uh, complicated things and, and, and thoughts down to this 20-year-old who has no life experience and probably got it because their dad donated to the senator to get the position. They don't know anything about, I was talking about urban centers in Chicago. They don't know anything about the West side of Chicago. Um, right. Yeah, I mean, it's challenging to distill the myriad of issues down to like 98 minutes. And when you have thousands and thousands, you know, hundreds of hours of, of footage, right? How do yep. you do that? which is why it's episodic. So um, yeah, I, I, you know, it's, it's, it's challenging as an academic to do it because we're typically, you know, with the way that we are measured in terms of our productivity is, you know, a book or a peer reviewed article. And I've done all, you know, I've, I've done the peer reviewed articles and, you know, I don't have any problem with them. And just in terms of educating my academic um, peers and with in, in terms of the science, but we also need to move into a space where we're making our work more accessible. And for me, that's that's using a camera and digital storytelling and humanizing the the young men that I work with and not pathologizing them as you know super predators or just young men wildly running the streets, seeking out someone to kill, which is just so far from the truth. And that's the reason why, the primary reason why I also decided to do this kind of work and use digital storytelling as a method. But 
you know, there are other scholars that are using it. It's it's becoming more widely um, accepted as a, a method for health communication. And I'm just glad that I could be at the forefront of telling that story in the gun violence space. It's an absolutely amazing project. So um, can you give everyone the URL? So the URL is www.lifeafterthegunshot.com. Um, and you can access it on our website or on YouTube. And we recently were awarded um, Award of Merit at the Indie Fest Film Festival in California for a documentary feature. Uh, we just were recently, and I'm not sure if we're going to be able to do it because of some technical issues with uh, the request that we should take down our site um, up to the, the film is screened, but we were asked to screen our film at the Washington DC International Film Festival. Not sure if that may, may or may not happen, um, but we've gotten a lot of uh, traction. We've been featured on NPR here and now uh, and the appeal. So in every town um, community violence report. So we're getting a lot of traction and then I appreciate you bringing me on your platform to talk about it. And I'm, all, I'm always um, enthused and honored when people have watched the film and really admire the work that has been done. Amazing, I'm honored to have you on. Um, and everyone, please go to Life After the Gunshot. It's, it's an amazing, what they produced is amazing and I'm sure more amazing stuff's gonna come out of it. It is um, something everyone should see, especially everyone that cares about gun violence or communities of color. Um, not only in D.C., but in the country. Professor, really appreciate it. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. thank you for having me. I would like to thank Dr. Richardson again for taking the time to sit down and discuss his project with us. Projects discussing stuff no one wants to talk about. The trauma caused by violence and the impact on the victims going forward in their lives. And just... One of the things that's really great about this project is the systemic, the way they look at systemic, all the systemic issues and tie them all together as root causes. It's really amazing. I suggest everyone, you can get access to episode one on their website now. Um, so I recommend everyone go um, do that. Okay, once again, Friday, this Friday, March 11th, day of action, you can go to cjpnation.org to sign up and get involved, get involved in the nation. We'll get you information. There's a social, uh, there's a day of action social media toolkit that we can send you, or you can hit us up at cjpjustpraj or hit us up on Instagram and we will get you the, um, the toolkit. All right. Thank you all. And we will see you next week. Bye.